Sally talked last night about the Four Noble Truths, the teaching of the Buddha that describes the journey from suffering to the end of suffering, or Nibbana, the state that's free from all craving. And the question arises in our meditation practice, is that kind of freedom that the Buddha was pointing to, some taste of freedom, is it only available at the very end of the path? when the person has become completely established in Nibbana, in a state of final awakening? Or is there some freedom that we can find in our journey before then? Sally pointed to this phrase of temporary Nibbana that Ajahn Buddhadasa used. So in the talk tonight, I want to focus on this question of the freedom that may be available here and now before you know, several lifetimes of journey along the path to full awakening, something possibly available sooner to us. And I'm going to describe it in terms of what one teacher called an unentangled knowing. So that's the subject of the talk this evening, unentangled knowing. For those of you who aren't uh, native English speakers, this is a very odd word, unentangled. So just the the meaning of it. Tangle refers to a twisting of yarn or string or ball or your hair if you've been riding in a convertible and it's gotten in a knot. And it's not easy to undo those tangles. Then entangle is the verb that describes that process happening. And so you can think about when a kitten plays with a big batch of yarn, how the kitten can get entangled in it and get their paws all wrapped up in it, or we can get um, entangled in a web of untruth. I remember when I was uh, in my teens, somebody that I really respected asked me to tell a lie for them. And I felt very uh, conflicted and uh, it was really painful for me. so we can get entangled in all these different ways and then putting un in front of it means that it's not entangled. So this is the phrase unentangled knowing. It was coined by a Thai laywoman teacher named Upasika Ki. It's unusual for, for women to teach in Thailand. Most of the teaching is done by monks. And it's even more unusual for the teaching to be done by a laywoman which she was. She was not an ordained uh, nun. And so this name, Upasika, means a laywoman supporter. And Ki was her, uh, I think, given name. So she's known as Upasika Ki. And this uh, phrase comes out of a Dharma talk of hers in a very wonderful book, which I recommend to you, called Pure and Simple. She taught in Thailand somewhere between the 1950s and the 1970s. So she's sort of contemporary. And her teachings are a very clear pointing again and again and again to the central point of of the Dharma, how we get caught and how we can work to free our hearts and minds. I found her teaching really powerful and a direct pointing. This concept of tangle was used often by the Buddha in his lifetime in describing the situation of things. He said, for example, the world is smothered and enveloped by craving like a tangled ball of yarn. 
So you get the sense of how our, you know, all these contradictory desires that make up craving sort of weave us into this web that is uh, confining and traps us and it's hard to, to release the mind from that tangle. And in another uh, occasion, there was this kind of nice dialogue. A questioner came up to the Buddha, who you remember uh, had the family name of Gotama. So he was often known as Gotama Buddha. And this questioner said, a tangle inside and a tangle outside. This generation is entangled in a tangle. Doesn't sound so different from now, does it? We could say that of our generation too. This generation is entangled in a tangle. So I ask of Gautama this question, who succeeds in disentangling this tangle? That's our situation, isn't it? We find ourselves caught in this tangle. We could call it craving or greed, aversion, delusion. Who succeeds in disentangling it? And the way the Buddha answered the question was that one who is developed in virtue, meditation, and wisdom disentangles this tangle. That's the development of the Eightfold Path that Sally was talking about, sila, samadhi, and panya. So that's the work that we're engaged in here, is disentangling ourselves from this tangle. So Upasaka Ki picked up on this image, which is used often in the suttas, and her central quote um, reads like this, an inward staying, unentangled knowing, all outward turning cast aside. We'll come back to this later. An inward staying, unentangled knowing. This inward staying is kind of the work of meditation, isn't it? We're always examining our inner world in response to uh, both our inner world and the outer world. But this inner world of response, an unentangled knowing. This will be the theme. The way that she uses this phrase evokes a, a, a kind of mindfulness that is very aware of all the objects of our experience, but isn't caught up in them, isn't attached, isn't clinging, isn't holding on, isn't enmeshed in them. So it's a quality of mindfulness that is in a state of some freedom in relation to all the things that are coming and going, the objects of our experience. So there's a sense with this word knowing that there's a full kind of presence and awareness, that this mindfulness is not limited in scope, but it's kind of fully there with everything that is happening to us, but it's not caught up. It's not caught in the reactive formations of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is actually our experience many moments of the day. When Sally was talking last night about temporary nibbana that Ajahn Buddhadasa was pointing to, I think she quoted him as saying that if we didn't have moments of coolness like this throughout the day, we'd all go mad. If we were enveloped in the kilesas nonstop, it would drive us crazy. But in fact, we're not. And we have these moments of unentangledness many times throughout the day. So in the talk tonight, I want to point to how we can recognize those how we can 
develop them further, and by recognizing them and developing them, they can become more and more of our experience. We will, we will know how they take place. And then in addition, I want to describe a couple of approaches to meditation that lead directly uh, to this kind of uh, relationship, this kind of outcome. And just one little footnote or caveat, a lot of the vocabulary I will use in the talk tonight comes from one particular school of Theravada, and that is the Thai forest lineage. So some of the vocabulary would not be comfortable for um, practitioners from other lineages, lineages that are very closely tied to the Abhidhamma or the Vasudhimaga or very orthodox Theravadan sources. Thai forest tradition has a little different way of expressing things. So that's the viewpoint that I want to communicate this evening. In order to understand clearly how freedom is accessed, we want to understand a little more deeply how bondage takes place, how it is that we get caught or entangled with the objects of our experience. So the Buddha's primary outline for the detailed way that we get caught is a teaching called the chain of dependent origination. And in the chain of dependent origination, the Buddha uses these 12 causal links that start from ignorance and go through intermediate steps that lead to the final outcome, which is forms of suffering. So this teaching explains in detail how suffering gets generated. And it, it puts it as a kind of cyclic process that will happen over and over and over again until we learn how to interrupt it. Now, I'm not going to go through all 12 links because that would be a whole other talk in and of itself. Later, someone may do that in this retreat. I'm not sure. So I'm going to drop out the first five links, which, for my taste, get a little bit philosophical and stir up views and opinions. And I'm going to drop out the last three links, which also get a little philosophical and can stir people up. I'm going to focus on what I consider the central four links of the chain, which are the most experiential and which we can start to notice in our meditation practice and work with directly in our immediate experience. These four links start from what what I'd say is our basic situation as human beings. And what is our basic situation? The Buddha described it in this um, sutta, which could be translated as the sutta on totality. And so I'll read you the, the gist of this sutta. Bhikkhus, what is the totality of life? Listen, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of life. That's pretty far out, isn't it? (laughs) I haven't heard many other philosophers or teachers say that they will teach the totality of life. So that caught my attention. Listen and attend carefully. The totality is simply the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. Anyone who tried to describe a totality 
beyond this would not know of what they were speaking. So this is the totality of our sense experience, isn't it? We've talked about this a number of times. These are the six senses and the organs that receive them. This is what makes up our human experience and every part of our normal sense experience is included here. One way of saying this is there are only ever six things happening. That's why it gets very simple in one way in our meditation. So the basic experience for us as human beings is that things keep happening to us at these six sense doors. It doesn't matter if you're old or young or male or female or from any culture or race, if you're awakened or unawakened, this is our common shared experience. Things keep happening in the realm of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mind objects. So the word for this, these six kinds of things, the word that the Buddha used for this is contact. And this happened, this is the sixth link in the chain of dependent origination. So this is where we're picking up the chain. Five other things have already happened to us. We're not going to go into those, like how we got here and why contact is happening. But the reality is contact is happening at these six sense doors. So that's what we pick up on. Contact is defined really precisely in the Buddha's terms, and it means the coming together of the sense organ, the sense object, and the sense consciousness. So for a sight to arise, there has to be an external object, my eye has to be working, and I have to have functioning sight consciousness. If I was asleep, my sight consciousness wouldn't be functioning. Even if somebody propped my eyes open, the sight consciousness maybe wouldn't be functioning. So when these three things come together, the object, the organ, and the consciousness, there is this thing called contact. The next link in the chain then is feeling tone, the Pali term Vedna, which we've talked about a lot, meaning that every one of these sense contacts has a feeling quality of being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So this is a really important point in the Buddha's teachings. I think we've talked about this quite a bit. Why is feeling tone so important? Because it's on the basis of pleasant, unpleasant, neither, that the conditioned reactions are based. Greed is based in relation to a pleasant feeling tone. Aversion arises in relation to an unpleasant feeling tone. And delusion arises often based on a neutral feeling tone. And the combination of these three reactions, greed, aversion, and delusion, is what is referred to as craving or tanha, which is also the second noble truth. So I think Sally mentioned that even though tanha, craving, has a, a desire uh, nature, it includes the formation of aversion because that's expressing a preference also. If we want things to be one way, we don't want them to be another. So this desire force expresses itself both as greed, wanting the pleasant, and aversion, not wanting the unpleasant. So these formations happen, and in normal life we don't see them happening, and that's why they're usually accompanied by delusion. 
So it's usually greed with delusion reacting or aversion with delusion reacting because we're not seeing them. When we start to see them, that changes the whole equation a little bit. So craving is the response, the conditioned response to feeling tone. And so craving is the next link in the chain of dependent origination. So it goes from contact, which brings about feeling tone. Feeling tone conditions craving, which is the reactive formation, greed, aversion, or delusion. The next thing that happens after craving, craving is kind of um, identifying the object and inclining the mind in that direction. And then if you pay attention, usually what happens is there's a fastening onto that particular object. Either a fascination with its pleasant quality or its unpleasant quality, there's a taking a hold of that happens, which is called grasping or clinging. And that's the next link. So this grasping or clinging is just in a way a further solidification of the movement of craving. It's like, okay, I'm drawn there. I kind of like it. Got it. And if you watch how your mind relates to these charged objects, you know, with strong feeling tone, you can see that happen. As the mind gets slowed, you can see that inclination and then the taking a hold of, called grasping or clinging. And then once we've taken a hold, then we tend to stay there for a while and we often will proliferate about it. I like it, I don't like it, I want more of it, I gotta get rid of it, this is gonna ruin my retreat, I can't have this in my life, and so on. So these are the, the central links in our experience of the chain. Contact, feeling, craving, clinging. And the key thing to understand is that clinging, once it has taken form, invariably leads on to suffering. I'll explain uh, that in a minute. But this is important to know that the clinging is the thing that gives the fuel for suffering to happen. So here we are. We're, we come into uh, conscious experience when we're fairly young. You know, you can think of it as being a baby, and all these objects start appearing in the world and form our, our world of contacts. Um, a mother, breast, food, father, school, girls, high school, crushes, college, jobs, career, money, taxes, government, Britney Spears, VH1, income tax, uh, Barack Obama, global economic crisis. It never stops. So of all these kind of objects that go by, some of them are very attractive, some of them are very scary, and we end up moving in relation to them, taking hold, wanting, you know, even to push something away, we have to take hold of it first. If you want to get rid of a pain in your knee, mentally you've got to take hold of it before you can kind of push against it. So the clinging happens not just in things we want to bring close, but also in things we want to push away. This is how we get entangled. And once entangled, suffering 
results from that. So actually what happens is that when we grasp on something and we hold on for a while and we start to proliferate around it, we create a new kind of sense of I in that relationship. So we could almost say we give birth by taking a hold of and then proliferating. What's happening is a new sense of self is getting created in that movement. So let, let me give a couple of examples. And the sense of self is always bound up with suffering because there's birth and death with this sense of self. A couple of examples. I told a story earlier in the retreat of how I was going out for a walking meditation one morning while I was on retreat here. And I looked down to my walking path and I saw there was somebody already walking there. Unpleasant. Very unpleasant kind of contact. And I I didn't like it. So there was immediately aversion. And then I started to proliferate about it. So I made a big thing of it. I latched onto it. And I got angry at that person who was in my walking path. And I thought all kinds of thoughts about why they shouldn't be there and what could their motivation be for being in my walking path. And they weren't very sensitive. And I proliferated about it for 30 minutes before I finally realized, hey, I'm angry. Took me that long. Once I realized I was angry, then I could could kind of work with it. But in in the middle of that, I had constructed a new sense of self which was the angry yogi. I was angry with one of my fellow yogis because he had appropriated something that belonged to me. So I took birth as the angry yogi. And I sustained that birth for a whole 30 minutes by thinking about it more and dwelling on it and basically grasping the situation over and over and over again through my thoughts and feelings. And of course, there was a lot of delusion because I wasn't seeing it. So there was a very solid taking of birth as an angry walker, say. Then when I could see what was happening, mindfulness came in and identified it as anger, I could release it. And in just a few minutes, the anger passed and I was happily doing walking meditation. So that angry yogi died then. He had a lifespan of about 30 minutes. He was very real. It was a very real formation of personality characteristics. And then he passed away. So that I took birth, lived out a lifespan, 30 minutes in this case, and then passed passed away. So that was an example of um, an unpleasant birth, an unhappy birth. But there are other examples of happy births that also take place here every day. So you come in for a sitting, and all of a sudden you notice the mind has gotten really still. Everything has just settled down. The body feels relaxed, but very comfortable. You're fully present. There are not a lot of thoughts dragging you away. The body energy is settled. Not a lot of hindrances going on. Wherever you turn your attention, you can connect kind of effortlessly. Feel the breath pay attention to sounds, open up to choiceless attention, and you're just there, moment after moment, with a sense of ease and peace. And now you realize, this is what I always knew my meditation could be like. It's taken me three weeks, but I've figured it out. I've got, now I know how to meditate. I know the secret to this stuff. Wow, this is going to be so much fun. I'm going to be able to go back into my daily life 
and carry on conversations like this. I'm going to be completely at ease. I won't be rattled by that next door neighbor or my boss at work. Wow, I'm going to have so much power in my daily life. And you think all those, and the concentration continues. Wow, I can think anything I want, and it's not disturbing this concentration. This is fabulous. And then let's take this out for a walk. So the bell, and, bell rings, sitting ends. Go out for a walk with every step. Life is going to be so fantastic from now on. I can't believe this. Can't wait to get back to sit next time. Walk slowly into the hall, sit down. It's all gone. The body energy is all stirred up. Lots of thoughts and emotions. I can't find the breath. I can't connect with sounds. Choiceless attention is nowhere to be found. Totally gone. Oh, I'm so bummed out. I can't believe it. So this is an example where birth took place out of a happy state. The birth of the good meditator. Came in, concentration was good, effortlessly present. The good meditator is born by claiming it. We look on that state and we say, that's who I am now. And I'm going to have that for a long time. At least a couple of, couple of hours. So by claiming it, we have clung to, we could call it the concentration, you could say the pleasure in the body, the ease in the mind, whatever quality particularly stood out. By claiming it, we have clung and we have taken a new birth. This is the self that arises as the good meditator. We take it out for a walk. Wow, it still works. So that solidifies the holding on to it. But when we come back in, it's gone. The good meditator has died. And that's painful. That death, that passing, the ending of that lifetime as a good meditator is very difficult. So, in the first example, the angry walker, we had a painful birth, but a happy death, right? The ending of the angry walker was a relief. So there we had painful birth, happy death. In the good yogi, we had a happy birth, but then the death was painful. So either way we cling, whether it's to pleasure or pain, there's suffering involved either immediately or when it changes. So that's why this process of clinging and forming an eye around anything will lead to suffering. If not immediately, then later. So eventually, we let go of that cycle of birth and death. We kind of step out of it. We release it. This happens again and again and again during a day. You can look from morning till night and you can see all these different selves taking birth with different things that happen. But eventually we release each one. That's why this is called the wheel of samsara because we keep getting born and then letting go and passing away. And Upasika Ki says that when we kind of let it go and come back into balance, we come back to what she calls normal mind. Now, this normal mind is not the normal in the outside world. We wish it were. But it's what she calls normal because it's where the meditator can discover again and again and and make our home base. This sense of uh, balance, you might say. So we come back to normal mind, but we go through a lot of ups and downs in between. So this, this quality of clinging, this fourth step, 
contact, feeling, craving, clinging. Quality of clinging is where a new self kind of solidifies. And then it becomes an interesting question to ask, you know, where does the self come from? Is there a self that's doing the grasping? Or is grasping just another mental activity that in fact leads to the sense of self? So Andrew Olensky, who's the director of the study center down the street, wrote this in an essay and kind of clarifies this question. What becomes clear through this analysis of moment-to-moment experience is that grasping is not something done by the self, but rather self is something done by grasping. The self is constructed each moment for the simple purpose of providing the one who likes or doesn't like, holds on to or pushes away what is unfolding in experience. Let me read that little Uh, nugget again. Grasping is not something done by the self, but rather self is something done by grasping. So This is the way we, we start to understand it, that every time we take a hold of something, we construct a new sense of self. There's the birth of a new I in a new form. This is kind of important because uh, this mind of ours, our sort of normal human condition, is compared to a monkey mind. And there's this image that I quite like of how a monkey travels through a forest. The monkey will grab hold of a vine and then will swing on that vine across, but generally won't let go of that vine until there's another vine to take a hold of. And then they'll swing on that vine until there's another vine to take a hold of. And if you look at the kind of untrained mind that's not observing itself, this is the way we all tend to function. That we grab a hold of something and we don't let go of it until there's something else to grab a hold of. So that this process of birthing into a new self is happening over and over, moment after moment, with just very, very brief respites that give a little bit of pause. So where is there any freedom in this? This chain that the Buddha laid out, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, he said was um, one of his uh, most profound insights. And this repetitive nature of the cycle is really what keeps us on the wheel of samsara. So where is there freedom? In it, or are we really doomed just to go through this cycle again and again? If there is some freedom in this cycle, that would be good to know, because not only would it um, lead to lead to insight here and now, but it would bring the fruit of the path closer to us, rather than expecting the fruit only to come after many many lifetimes. If we could find the fruit of the path now, it would give us a lot of confidence and faith and trust in, in this process. So really the question is, it's kind of an understanding of how the chain is interpreted. Can the chain be broken? Is it a strict causal sequence? Or is it only a conditioning sequence? A leading to, but not always, sequence? 
The right understanding is that the chain is not a strict causal sequence. It is a leading to, a not necessarily causal sequence. And classically, where the chain can be broken is in between feeling and craving. I think this is important to understand. If there's enough mindfulness, and I know you all have experienced this in your meditations here, if there's enough mindfulness, can you be with a pleasant feeling and not move into greed? Has everybody experienced that? Mostly. If there's an unpleasant contact, unpleasant feeling tone, can you be with that and not move into aversion? I've heard it a lot in interviews. And if there's a neutral experience, can you be with that and not be oblivious, not space out, not go into delusion? I think all of you have experienced those, you know, moment after moment in the retreat. This is really a key point in our practice. This is a point that we could call acceptance, non-reactivity, equanimity, where we're fully with the experience of the feeling tone, but we don't move into the reactive formations, we don't move into craving. So you are finding out in your direct experience that it's possible to be with feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and not have craving arise in the next moment. This is really important. It's kind of revolutionary. This is what can get us off the wheel. It's really important to become familiar with what this feels like because this place is the sweet spot in meditation. And meditation goes best when we can be there. The more we contact it and recognize it, the easier it is to find that place. You could call it the place of non-craving. You call it the place of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. You call it the place of temporary nibbana, as Sally mentioned last night. One Buddhist teacher put it this way. He said, the whole of the Buddhist path is resting in this gap between feeling and craving. Finding this place where feeling is present, and you're fully with it, you're really aware, you're totally mindful, but it doesn't lead into craving. That's the place to rest. And he says the whole of the path is resting there. So start to recognize this, start to explore it. What does that feel like? People will have different descriptions. You might say it feels um, easeful. It feels uh, spacious. It feels restful. It feels uh, non-conflicted. It feels light. But the other word that I want to put in here is that kind of place feels free. We can start to feel the freedom that's available when we're not caught in reactive formations. So, resting in that gap is the path, as this one teacher said, but it's also in some way our goal. 
The definition of nibbana expressed by Sariputta in the suttas is the destruction of greed, aversion, and delusion. Well, we're resting in a place where, relatively at least, greed, aversion, and delusion are absent. So that's why we're getting a, a little foretaste of this total experience of nibbana. This freedom is like the nibbana of an awakened one. It's not as full. It's not as complete. It's not finished. But it's a little bit of the same stuff. So there's, it's the path and it's also the goal. And as we start to feel into it, recognize it, and access it more, it starts to expand. So more of our practice comes from this place that feels like a fruition, feels like um, an end, an end point. Not total end point, but a kind of uh, reaching of an end point. And something else about this, this resting place, feeling tone is there, but we're not reacting out of blind conditioning. Greed, aversion, and delusion are blindly conditioned reactions. We're not reacting out of those. So somehow the mind has found a place that's not being determined by the conditions. The conditions would say, oh, you should go now to greed, aversion, delusion. But our mind isn't being determined by that. We're not being forced into that conditioning. So we've also found something in here that is less conditioned leaning to the unconditioned nature of things. We're not being determined by the conditions. We've stepped out of the conditions to a certain extent, and so we've touched a little bit on the unconditioned, which is a synonym for uh, the Dhamma. So we start to see this resting place as a kind of um, Dhammic way to be, And then conditioned things go on at the same time. They don't necessarily interfere with that. This is a quote from Ajahn Chah. It's a little long, but I hope you'll you'll stay with it. The Buddha talked about conditioned and unconditioned things. Conditioned things are innumerable, material and immaterial, big and small. If our mind is under the influence of delusion, it will proliferate about these things, dividing them up into good and bad, pleasant and painful, likes and dislikes. Why does the mind proliferate like this? Because there is still the belief that all these things are oneself or belong to oneself. The tendency to conceive things as oneself is the source of suffering, birth, old age, sickness, and death. This is the worldly mind, spinning around and changing at the directives of worldly conditions. This is the conditioned mind. The unconditioned refers to the mind that has seen the Dhamma, the truth of conditioned things as they are, as transient, imperfect, and ownerless. When we know conditions as neither ourselves nor belonging to us, we let go of conditions and attain the Dhamma. We enter into and realize the Dhamma. When we attain the Dhamma, we know clearly. So resting in this gap... We can be at peace, and yet all the conditioned world is still unfolding. We're not caught up in it. We're at rest. We're at peace. 
but we're also fully aware. And by resting, not grasping, we're not giving rise to a new sense of I. So we're not taking a new birth at that point. We're not creating a new self with this rest. So not taking birth, we're also not subject to dying. There's this kind of sweet sequence in the Sutta Nipata where um, a bunch of young Brahmins come to ask questions of the Buddha. And in in the day, the Brahmins were the um, religious elite. And the wanderers, like the Buddha and other ascetics, were kind of outside the realm of normal society. And so the, the Brahmins tended to look down on them. So when young Brahmins would come to ask questions of the Buddha, It was just kind of a sweet stepping out of their social role uh, because they had a deep spiritual interest and weren't so concerned with the social role at that point. So this is one Brahmin youth um, asking his question. His name is Todeya. So he asked the Buddha, for one who is freed, what is that liberation like? Wouldn't you have loved to ask this question? What is that liberation like? And the Buddha replied, That sage is without desire. He has nothing. He is unentangled in becoming. So again, this pointing to unentangled nature. And Ajahn Chah had a nice gloss on this concept of becoming. You can imagine him giving a Dharma talk in Thailand. Um, The Dharma talks were usually given in um, outdoor halls. They had a floor. They had a roof. And they had pillars supporting the roof, but they didn't have walls. They weren't closed in because the temperature was so mild, they could just let the air uh, come and go. So imagine Ajahn Chah giving a talk in an outdoor sala, a hall like that. And he's pointing, and he says, the roof is a becoming, the floor is a becoming, but in the empty space between the roof and the floor, there's nowhere to stand. There's no becoming. Where there is no becoming, that's where there's emptiness. And to put it bluntly, we say that Nibbana is this emptiness. So when we rest in this gap, we're not becoming. We're not taking a stand. We're not taking a stand on any of the sense phenomena that are coming our way. So in that, there's a kind of empty place. And in that emptiness, we're not being born. And so we're not subject to, um, to death. This is from Ajahn Jamnian. And, oh, and yet, we're still fully aware. Full presence, full knowing, all the sense phenomena are in, are in contact. Ajahn Jamnian, another Thai forest teacher. The best way to develop a great awareness is to rest your attention within that knowing space of consciousness, in the pure space of knowing. If you understand and can rest in this pure knowing, That is the place of the deathless. From this pure consciousness that's unmoved by what arises, then you see the phenomena of the world, which all have the nature to arise and pass away. Phenomena show their dharmas of impermanence, and this other is the dharma of the deathless. So by balancing in this place, this gap between feeling and craving, we're moving into a place of unbecoming, which has an undying and unconditioned quality. 
One of my teachers in Thailand, another Thai forest teacher, was Ajahn Buddhadasa. He was one of the great masters in Thailand in the last half of the last century. And he seemed always to be resting in this place. I never saw him move out of this place. And um, frankly, it kind of disturbed me as I was getting to know him because uh, he was very accessible in those days. He was, he was kind of iconoclastic. He had a habit of speaking his mind, and whether that was uh, against the government or the military or the social order, he'd just tell it the way he saw it. And in the days that I was there, he was always available to, to us uh, as monks or to the visitors who came to the monastery. So after breakfast, he would just sit on this stone bench that was outside his, his little house. And the forest chickens would come out and they'd be kind of scratching around in the dirt at his feet. And the temple dogs would be wandering around. A couple of them would be lying at his feet. And these temple dogs, I swear, they always could smell a Westerner. And they'd bark at us and bite at us, but they'd let the Thai monks go by. So it was always a little bit of a challenge to go up and visit with Ajahn Buddhadasa. You never knew if you were going to get attacked by a temple dog. But if I wanted to ask him a question about Dharma, I could just go up basically any day and visit with him there. So I'd go, you know, I could go up, I'd make my three bows, and then um, address him. And uh, his expression never changed. I'd make my bows, I'd ask my, you know, start to ask my question. He wouldn't say, oh, how nice to see you today, or is your practice going well, or could I get you a cup of tea? He's not like a Western Vipassana teacher. (laughs) He was just sitting there watching everything arise and pass away, meditating all the phenomena of his senses, and he was meditating me too. So at first I took it as a rejection. He's not being at all friendly. He doesn't want me here. But I'd stay and ask my question, and he wasn't impatient at all. And it took me a long time to realize that if I wanted to hang out there for quite a while and talk Dharma, I, I could. But normally I got intimidated and I thought, oh, he doesn't want me here. So I'd, I'd get up and go. But he was, uh, he was equanimous about the arisings and passings. And he was equanimous about my arising and passing. <laughs> he didn't care if I came, asked questions, or went away. It was just all the same to him. So he rested in this great balance. And uh, looking back, I really admire him for that. Now, at some point in one's meditation practice, it can become skillful to uh, make a little bit of a shift. We start off looking very closely at the objects of the senses. And it's really important in Vipassana meditation that we become quite skilled at looking at the six sense doors and their associated objects so that we see how we can get caught and entangled with each one. It's only by a real clear investigation of the sense phenomena that we learn how not to get caught. And then when we've gotten somewhat good at noticing and being mindful of the different sense objects, sometimes the question comes in, okay, I've gotten pretty good, pretty fluent with objects. What's the subject side like? In other words, there's all this awareness happening, and usually we focus it on the knowing of the objects, but what about the quality of awareness itself? And here I'll, I'll, I'll use it as a, 
a broad kind of mindfulness, a knowing of objects in a broad way. Not so much a particular, but this faculty that knows in kind of a broad way. Because ultimately we start to realize objects are not ultimately where it's at. They, they can't satisfy. If we cling, we suffer. None of them is going to give a lasting happiness. And this quality of awareness becomes more interesting as time goes by. So we might want to kind of put more of our attention there. So I want to just briefly talk about two ways of doing this. These are the two meditation approaches that I mentioned that lead to this putting awareness toward awareness more. So one is a way that we've alluded to a number of times. I want to spell it out a little more clearly. A practice that I learned from Saidao Utejaniya, which is this um, process of um, checking regularly on our attitude, which is what his name for our relationship to the experience we're having in that moment. So we've talked about this. Checking, is there greed, aversion, or delusion in the mind? This is what he recommends doing. So just carrying on meditation, mindful of arisings and passing, your anchor, breath, body, sounds, choiceless attention, whatever. And then turning and asking, well, what's the relationship to those? Is there greed, aversion, or delusion in my relationship to those? This is not always so easy to see, so he suggests three simple questions. To check on greed, you ask, am I wanting something else to happen? To check on aversion, you ask, am I wanting something to stop happening? And to check on delusion, you ask, am I not in touch with what's happening? Usually by the time you ask, am I not in touch, you're back in touch. Usually the answer is to delusion is no. But very often we see, yeah, I would like something to happen. I want more peace in this sitting. Or I want something to stop happening. I don't want this pain or the wandering mind to continue. So if you see greed, aversion, or delusion, don't be judgmental of those. Just make that reaction the new subject for mindfulness. Don't judge it. Don't try to push it away. Don't try to make it go away. Just include it in this is also part of my experience now. So just be mindful of that. When I first started practicing in this style, I was doing a choiceless attention practice, but maybe every 10 minutes, maybe like five times a sitting, I would uh, kind of turn and check my attitude. And then I got more comfortable with it. And I could, I could uh, check without so much verbiage. I wouldn't have to go through you know, big questions. I could just sort of turn because I'd done it a bunch of times, I could see if there was greed, aversion, or delusion. And then I, I got more interested in it. I really saw that there was a lot to this question of how am I relating. So I started to check more often. And I would check 10 times a sitting. Well, eventually I realized that if my mind was steady, this could be my main practice. I didn't, if I didn't need sense objects to steady the mind, if there was an innate steadiness, I could just keep tuned in on the arising of greed, aversion, or delusion. And by tuning into that, it meant that I was more often able to see it, and often that seeing, when it was weak, would release it. So it became a very helpful way to center and to not go out so much in greed, aversion, delusion. Upasika Key says the same exact thing. 
So your awareness has to take a firm stance right at the mind in and of itself. When mindfulness is standing firm, the mind won't be affected by the objects of sensory contact. If mindfulness slips and the mind goes out latching onto things, troubles will arise. So you have to keep checking on this in every moment. There's nothing else that is so worth checking on. So this is the practice of Saida Utejaniya, checking on attitude, and eventually it can become the primary practice if the mind is stable. So this is one approach. The second approach in meditation is to turn awareness toward awareness itself. So let me just describe how this would work. As you're sitting here now, just kind of let your eyes go out if they're open, or your ears if they're open, to all the objects in the room. You, know, you can just kind of let your eyes roam and you notice the, you know, the beautiful things and the things that are not so appealing, you know, the nice sconces on the walls and the shiny faces of the yogis who have been in retreat for three weeks already. You're getting more, more beautiful every day. Um, the nice texture of the floor and the walls and anything that's unpleasant that you might react to. Just let your eyes kind of latch on and delight and play with that field of pleasant and unpleasant. And now, instead of sending that attention outward, what if it's turned back on the awareness itself? Or you might say the source of the knowing. Does that feel any different? You've been out, 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 awareness going out through the eyes, latching on to things, getting involved, liking, disliking. Now you come back and you turn it inward, back toward awareness itself. Does it feel any different? Do you feel a shift when you do that? So sometimes people say that that brings a sense, a little sense of relief, a little sense of ease, a sense of disentangling, a sense of spaciousness, of stepping back, of settling down a little. You can play with it in your meditation. But sometimes it offers a way that we can unhook from a fixation on sense objects coming back into awareness itself. Now, this is not a simple meditation instruction like notice the sensation of your breath at the nose. This quality of looking at awareness is, is very subtle. I think it's the most subtle way to look in meditation. So it may not be so apparent at first. That's okay. Just play with it over time if it appeals to you. And some of the different phrases that are used to suggest this, different ones might work better for you than others. So some of the ones are turn your attention to awareness, become aware of awareness, turn awareness back on itself. Or sometimes you might ask the question, who is aware? Or what is knowing? There's all this going out, knowing, liking, disliking, sense objects, pleasure, pain. Then ask, who's knowing? And just come back inside and feel that, feel how that settles. The mind that's aware of awareness doesn't send its knowing outside this awareness. This is Upasaka Key's description of the way to this unentangled knowing. So in this language, 
we send our awareness outside when we get involved in sense contact. And outside in this case means not just the objects outside us, but even the body and even the thoughts and moods that are inside, quote unquote, that are part of mind objects. We stay just with the awareness itself. Anything else is outer. The mind that's aware of awareness doesn't send its knowing outside this awareness. Nothing can be concocted in the mind when it knows in this way. In other words, an inward-staying, unentangled knowing. All outward-going knowing cast aside. This inward turning doesn't mean that we cut off from the world. You know, when you ask a question like, who is knowing, or what is aware, or turn awareness to awareness, do you lose contact with your senses? Do you lose touch with the world? No. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings, they all still come. But it's as though we've moved into a little different center of gravity. And it's a center that's not bound to whether things are there or not. But if we need to relate, we're still in touch. But we're in touch from an even more peaceful place. So, if you like, you can play with this. We're going to do another meditation in a a couple of days that will give another avenue into this, probably an easier way in. But for now, if you'd like to play with the sense of turning toward awareness, do it sometime when you feel a little stuck. Some kind of greed has caught in, some kind of aversion. You feel entangled, there's contraction, there's something unpleasant. Turn to the knower or the knowing. I'm just using knower as who is knowing, not that there's someone there. Turn to the knowing, turn to awareness. See if you can feel that. And see how that feels in relation to this place of being caught, being hanging on to something. When the Buddha was visited by these Brahmin uh, youths, this is another question from another young man named Kappa. For one stranded in the middle of the lake, in the flood of great danger, overwhelmed with aging and death, tell me the island, dear sir. And the Buddha replied, having nothing, clinging to nothing, that is the island. There is no other. That is Nibbana, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. So let's just sit for a minute, please. Having nothing, clinging to nothing, that is the island. There is no other. That is Nibbana, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. 